are live from the empire of lies and just outside the matrix, it's time once again for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Well, once again, our incredible producer, Rod from Philly, has put together a great show, including a first-time guest. In the first hour, though, we have a guest who's a frequent guest on the show, good friend of the show, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. Is that right, Rod? That's correct. And I'll, I'll put it like this. The Department of Homeland Security has been in the headlines lately, but it's for that information governance board, disinformation governance board, whatever. Right? Now, that's not... So, but by the way, what they should be in the in the headlines for is for keeping the homeland secure. And we'll be talking to Andrew Arthur about is there any indication, Rod, that Mayorkas, from the things we're going to see in here today, uh, here today, i got a couple clips for you, too, that Mayorkas is keeping our homeland secure or just censoring speech? <laughs> no, uh, you're, you're right. He's a... Uh... He's actually doing the opposite of his job. He's uh, letting as many people in as possible. He's letting dangerous people in and unaccounted for. It's just, uh, like you said, it should be in the headlines, but it's not. Right. And 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 we'll talk about when this fits into the story on censorship, because I saw a piece on Fox. Uh, no, no, it was not on Fox News. It was about Fox News host Tucker Carlson and that New York Times story written about him, it was clear that they were focused when they called him the most racist host. They, the author of that piece, the writer over the New York Times was very clear. He doesn't like Tucker Carlson's position on immigration. And he accuses him of being a fear monger. He's mongering fear. Now, I'm not sure fear is the right word, but we're, what is it now, 500,000 people a month? Illegal yeah, immigrants? Crazy. I think in two, uh, 2021, I think 800,000 people have come in to America, over 800,000 people. 800,000 people is about the population of South Dakota, where I am. So that's, imagine if a whole state, you know, came in. That's correct. And the new numbers are frightening, including terrorists, and they don't know where they are. They don't know what's going on with the terrorists. They don't know how many have gotten in, and they're not prepared to answer that. And you'll hear that later. So, alarm. Is Tucker Carlson right to sound some alarm? That's alarming. He's being a, a man. He's being a man. He's being a father. He's saying, you know, we, there's dangerous people in this country unaccounted for, and we need to know where they are, who they are, and if, you know, they're terrorists, we need to get them help, get them the hell out of here. Right. And and, but it's clear that the part of the reason they hate Tucker Carlson is that he's 
addressing this issue. Now, in the second hour, we have a first-time guest, Scott Powell. He's the author of a book, Rediscovering America. And we're on with Carter Laren as our co-host in the second hour. And I think this will be a very interesting segment uh, because he's going to be talking about how we can tell the history of America through our national holidays. Right? Is that it, essential? Yeah, that is. And I think it's uh, you got a unique take on how to talk about America. And I think uh, it'll anger some people, but it'll make some people, uh, I think, make some people proud and, uh, you know, other people uh, indifferent. No, and I think it brings up some important things that are getting lost about America. And I'll talk about that in a second. Also taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is The Backstory. And uh, one topic I want to talk about is the Black Panthers. And this may be a little, seem a little weird, but I was thinking about the myths about the Nazis from Ukraine and the denial that a lot of Ukrainians are in about their Nazi, sadistic Nazi background. Not all, but some of them are in denial about it, and others just blatantly lie about it. And I was thinking, because the Black Panthers are a story that I've studied a lot about, and I find that I know more about the Panthers than anyone I've ever talked to. I'm an expert on Black Panthers, because I spend a lot of time and time on the road up in Oakland at the Oakland Public Library going through issues of Black Panther. And there's a lot of mythology about the Black Panthers, just like there's a lot of mythology about Bandera and a lot of the Ukrainian Nazis. There's a lot of mythology about it. And I I noticed, maybe it's because I've studied the Black Panthers, I see some similarities. And I was talking about that on Twitter last night, and somebody said, well, CIA and the FBI are involved in both. And I'm going to disagree. And I'm going to tell that story. I'm going to say that one of the persistent lies of the Black Panthers is trying to overemphasize the role of the CIA and the FBI, particularly in the breakup of the Black Panthers. Because the Black Panthers were really only around for about seven years. Okay, about 66 to 71, I'd say, right around there, was the heyday of the Black Panthers. And that was the period that they were most influential. And they broke up for a very specific reason, which I'm about to tell you. But it was not because the FBI and the CIA infiltrated them and broke them up. That's not what happened. And I know this, and like like a lot of the stuff with Ukraine, this is easily researched and provable. We know why the Panthers broke up. And I would say 
if we're the CIA, we would know that story. But the, what actually happened, the reason it's part of mythology is the Panthers, the true story of why the Panthers broke up, of why they came together as a, a part, as a group, does not look good. It doesn't sound awesome. And saying that the FBI or the CIA infiltrated the Panthers and caused a split and caused the disintegration of the group sounds romantic. Do you know what I mean by that, Rod? Yeah, I know what you're saying, Lee. A lot of these stories get, uh, like you saying, romanticized or myth- mythicized. Um, you know, uh, we spoke with Larry Pinkney, uh, who came on in 2020, and he talked about, uh, you know, how the Black Panther started uh, and what, what they were for and then how certain uh, people came in and started certain sects of the Black Panther that weren't for, for the original cause, and that was uh, started infighting that way. But I also think th- this story is... Huey Newton, it's Huey's fault, entirely Huey's fault, that the Panthers ended the way they did. Here's what happened. And, of course, Huey Newton, one of the founders of Black Panthers, along with Bobby Seale, and Huey was really the main founder. He was a person who was a driving force behind the Panthers. And uh, he he caused... To break up, and it wasn't CIA infiltration or anything. It was Huey P. Newton's fondness for Cabossier and Coke. That's what broke it up. So here's what happened Big Bob Hurd, who was, who recently died, by the way, Big Bob Hurd, who was Huey's driver, was driving Huey around Oakland as he did, because he was his driver. And Huey was in the back of the car on Cavalier and Coke, because he liked those things. And a hooker yelled out to Huey. She yelled, hey, baby, from the corner. Now, Huey had Big Bob turn the car around, because Huey hated to be called baby. Because there was a cartoon when he was growing up called Baby Huey, about an elephant. And as a child, because his name was Huey, kids made fun of that. So he heard the hooker say, hey, baby. But really, she was just trying to call attention to herself. So Huey had Bob turn around. She yelled, hey, baby. And he pulled up to this hooker on the streets, 17-year-old hooker, and Huey had a pistol with him, and he pulled out the pistol, and he shot the hooker dead. That's what Huey Newton did. Now, that doesn't sound, it's hard to spin that. You see what I'm saying? Shooting a 17-year-old hooker dead because you're drunk and you didn't like being called baby that doesn't sound as good as, well, the man took us down. Does it, Rod? No, it's no not, not at all. No. And so, and, and there's no doubt about this history. And if people 
lie about it. If you ask them about it, you push them and go, well, that was what happened. They'll go, yeah, because we know this because Huey fled to Cuba. And then he was hiding in Cuba because he didn't want to be arrested and go back to jail. He'd also beaten up a tailor who he had, who made the mistake of saying, calm down, baby. You know, just, he was talking that jive and calling Huey baby, but that's not a good thing to call Huey. So he fled to Cuba. Now, when he was in Cuba, he was working on his way back because he didn't want to stay in Cuba. And when he came back to the United States, Huey, the Panthers had been taken over by Lane Brown while he was gone. And they were working on what to do about this legal case about the hooker had been shot to death. Now, what they should have done was listen to their lawyers. But Huey had his own plan. Huey's plan was to kill the hooker who was standing next to the hooker and therefore eliminate the witness. So Huey came back and he said, we're going to handle this. And a lot of Panthers said, no, no, we got this handled, Huey. But Huey said, no, we're going to do it my way. We're going to shoot the hooker who's a witness. You see any potential problems with that plan, Rod? I see a thousand problems with that plan. <laughs> Continue. And he, he wouldn't listen to him. And so a few of the Panthers... We're going to do Huey's will. And they went out to shoot the hooker, who was the witness. But the problem was they got the wrong address. And the person whose address they went to had a gun. So when the Panthers came in to kill the witness, she wasn't there. And the occupant of the house had a gun. So... He starts, they started shooting. I think it was a woman. And one of the Panthers was hit. And when she, the Panther was hit, they were bleeding. And also the cops were called in. When the cops called in, they could trace the blood, you see, and see the problem. And so this botched assassination attempt that didn't have to happen effectively destroy the Panthers because people started getting arrested and people started saying, you know, it's it start, started to rip the Panthers apart. The infrastructure was already in some disarray, but that's what happened. Now, there's no CIA or FBI involvement. They didn't lie to him and set him up or anything like that. They didn't plant, this is not Operation Baby. But that true story, and then, you know, what's happened is, I'll tell you who else doesn't have an incentive to tell the truth about this story. Do you think it's the CIA's advantage to say, no, 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 that wasn't us. That was Huey Noon on his own. No, the, they have an advantage in making people think that they took down the Panthers as they like people to think 
See, power to some extent is what you people think you have. If they think you're powerful, then you're powerful. So the CIA is in no hurry to correct this record. But anybody can find the details. And I found it not only does the Library of Congress did interviews and a former Panther goes through all this in detail, but in the papers of in Oakland, this stuff made the papers. The first hooker murder and when they tried to kill the witness and made the papers. It's all on the record. But so I'm not saying it's someone was like, and this pissed me off. Someone was like, well, you're obviously a fan of the FBI and the CIA. No, I'm not. Anybody who listens to me knows I'm not. However, I also know what happened here. And this wasn't the FBI or the CIA. And the other one that's part of the Panther mythology is they talk about the death of Fred Hampton. And movies have been made about Fred Hampton. And that it's also a Panther myth that Fred Hampton was assassinated and everything else. And I'm not going to go into that now. But it's very easy to find... There's lots of evidence of what happened. It was not an FBI or CIA plot. And the FBI, but what they do is, and it's the same way the Ukrainians have a cult of personality around Stefan Bandera. The Black Panthers have a cult of personality around Huey Newton. And so they don't want to tell the truth about him. They want to leave out inconvenient stuff, but there's no doubt about it. And I think that's an aspect of both of these cases. That's one of the similarities. These people who built up a cult of personality around a central personality. One case, Bedera, and the other, Huey Newton. What would you say the inconvenient truce of, uh, I mean, you know, just so people can hear it, of, of Bandera that some Ukrainians don't want to talk about? That he was a Nazi. That he was not a freedom. Look, the because remember I talked yesterday. In Germany, they threw out the Ukrainian envoy. Okay, I said that yesterday. Remember that, Rod? The Ukrainian envoy's been sent out of Germany. Right. Yeah. Now I saw a quote later, a direct quote, and it was a great quote. Germany said, this person who threw him out said, he's a Nazi sympathizer. Anyone who calls Bandera a hero and and worships him by going to his gravesite to pay tribute to him. And the, the Ukrainian envoy had done this. You're right? You see what I'm saying? So Germany... So what they do is right. the mythology of Banderas, because it's a good question, is that he's a freedom fighter. He's a hero, not a Nazi collaborator and a sadistic bastard. That's who the real Bandera is. But the myth is that he's a hero. You see what I'm saying? 
Right. Yeah. No. I just, I just wanted you to put it out there so people could hear it, and you know, because I, you know, I, I, we had the well, we couldn't see it because we were on radio, but PBS interviewing somebody, and right behind him is a big portrait of Stefan Bandera, and you know, they don't, you know, obviously they don't, they don't even acknowledge it, and then, then afterwards they, they blurt it out. Right. And when I say this is easily researched and confirmed, what I mean by that is if you know where to look for it. See, if you did research initially on, if you went to Google and you said, are Ukrainian Nazis, right? You would find a hundred stories that say, no, Ukrainians aren't Nazis. Because there's a lot of people building up that mythology now. And the United States is part of that. And the media is in denial about, they want to make it seem like it's a crazy Putin theory that he dreamed up out of thin air. But if you know where to look and what to look for, and this isn't rumors, if you go to the CIA's own archive, type in CIA FOIA archive and do a search for Lebed, L-E-B-E-D, you'll find a story from the Village Voice called To Catch a Nazi. That story absolutely outlines how the CIA has been working with Ukrainians since the 40s. And part of what they did is the Ukrainians wanted to bury the truth of them collaborating with the Nazis. And in some cases, the, the, the Ukrainian Nazis outright lie about it. They say, no, 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 we're not Nazis. We're freedom fighters. And they point out that Bandera and Labed, at one point, the, the Nazis didn't like those two. But they never renounced the ideology. And the Nazis got mad at those guys for reasons that had nothing to do with ideological differences. And, and furthermore, Congress in 2016 refused to give funding to the Azov Battalion because they were Nazis. And that made the papers. So what I'm saying is, if you did initial research on your own, you'd find 100 articles saying that they're not Nazis. But none of them refute these articles that are out there and they've been buried. What I call it is burying a needle in a haystack. It's not that this stuff isn't, and I'll put it like this. A few months before the war, this was easier to find. But here's the way social media and technocratic censorship works. If the truth is out there, you could have found it pretty easily four months ago. If you went to YouTube, you'd easily find stories saying that the Azov Battalion were Nazis. And you'll see it in their own words, the Azov Battalion saying. But what they've done is, by the New York Times and other people putting out stories that says that's a myth, you know the way search engine rankings work, right, Rod? On Google, 
Yeah, no, I, I was about to tell you um, that, uh, the fact that you're talking about that. Uh, you brought up the Library of Congress. I saw the um, the woman who's the head of uh, YouTube's, um, I guess, content cre- creator. I, I don't know exactly her title, but yeah. I know she was up there. She was up there at Congress. She was at the Library of Congress talking about disinformation and how to pretty much like you were talking about um, ranking certain information. So certain people won't be able, even if they put in the exact title of a video, it'll be the video might not even come up. Right. That's right. And and what happens is if the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and a few other sites that forget their accuracy, they're big sites. If they put out a story that goes, Putin's lie, the Ukrainians had no Nazi connection. If they put out those stories, if you type in Ukrainian Nazi, those stories that are inaccurate and that obfuscate the truth are what's going to come up first. You see what I'm saying, Grant? And so what they do is they put out a lot of fake stories and the fake stories bury the real story. So I've seen the same thing happen with the Panthers. There are certain aspects of the story that at one point were very easy to find. But like the Fred Hampton story, there was two films last year uh, about the Black Messiah and uh, the other Chicago 7. They created a lot of fake stories that have now overtaken. It was at one point stories about factual stories about Fred Hampton were fairly easy to find because the Fred Hampton shooting made the newspapers at the time. But now finding that, yeah, go ahead, Rod. No, I wanted to talk about that because uh, I know the um, the one Netflix one made, uh, which was the uh, the Seven. Uh, uh, you know, Adam McKay is being sued on a separate note. Uh, he's being sued because uh, he made a portrayal of a book about the Lakers and he's talking about Jerry West. And, he, you know, he's making Jerry West out to be an alcoholic and this, that and the third. I know you can do creative things or creative license with, uh, with shows like that. But he's being sued for defamation and, and uh, def- defamation of character. And then going back to these movies, uh, Avery DuVray made the uh, Central, Central Park Five movie where she lied about them being hit in the interrogation when, you know, the parents are there in the video and you, and you can see it on YouTube. So, that you know, Netflix goes, uh, they bend the truth a lot, you know, and they, 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 they twist it a knot with these movies they keep, they, they're making. And one of the things these movies make is that the pur- purpose is not just to convince people to watch the movie. It changes the search engine rankings, right? It changes the search engine rankings. Because a ton of stories come out in all kinds of paper, you know, not just the New York Times, but stuff like Entertainment Weekly, the entertainment news comes out. And once those get onto social media or something like that, they overtake in the search rankings and that becomes the new truth, even though you'll see and if you know how to read the stories, you'll see, well, they're not denying this. They just don't mention it. They just obfuscate the truth. So I think there's some important lessons there. 
And uh, I appreciate everyone who listens to the show because you're interested in the truth. Someone on Twitter was also saying to me, because I have the badge to know that I'm Russian state-sponsored media, right? And that's in my profile on Twitter. It says I'm Russian-affiliated media. Let me not argue that point for a second, because I could. I But what's wrong with Russian-affiliated media? What stories, if you ask the average person, what they're going to say is what's wrong with it? Well, it's Russian. That's not an answer. What stories has Russian affiliated media gotten wrong? Rod, can you think of some stories that we've gotten consistently wrong? Uh, to be honest, even if a story that we conflated something or something, I, I can't think of it. You know, I'd love for somebody to call in and, and tell us, but I, I really can't think of it. Right. Like I could say American affiliated media, not even official, but just big papers. They all got Russiagate wrong and they later admitted it. They later admitted the Steele dossier was false. It was opposition research. And the Biden laptop story, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post now admits that's real. But. Russian affiliated media, whoever, RT, Sputnik, TASS, whoever, what story did they, they get wrong? It's provable that the Biden laptop story, they said that was wrong. It's a lie. And now they admit it's true. Where where did RT, TASS, Sputnik screw up? I'm just saying, I can't think of any. And furthermore, not only can't I think of any, but if you ask someone the question, what's your problem with Russian affiliated media? They couldn't answer. You see what I'm saying, Rod? If you ask somebody on Twitter, what's the problem with that? They would just say, well, it's Russia. And say, okay, you don't like Russia, got it. But what stories have they gotten wrong? And they wouldn't be able to say one or they'd say they're still my. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Rod. They're still mad. Uh, uh, Drago beat Apollo, uh, killed Apollo Creed Lee. Yes, as it should be. But and when we come back, Andrew Arthur will be talking about frightening things that the media has gotten wrong. Right, Rod? The the true story of the huge crisis at the border is another one that American media from the New York Times to the Washington Post to NPR have gotten consistently wrong and are trying to bury it by saying it's lies or racism. But there's a big crisis at the border. And we'll be talking about it after this break with Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies on The Backstory.
And we're back on the backstory in Oasis of Truth in the Empire of Lies. 105.5 FM, AM 1390, bringing the truth even D.C. on the radio. And of course, all over the damn internet. Our next guest, Andrew Arthur, is with the Center for Immigration Studies. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing fine. How are you doing today, Lee? Good. Great to talk to you again. Now, since the Department of Homeland Security has the Disinformation Governance Board, let's talk about disinformation. And Arthur, I mean, Andrew, forgive me. Andrew, let's play a game show type type game. Because I was just talking about how fake stories affect search rankings in Google. And the way they do this is if 20 outlets put out the fake news and they're big outlets like New York Times, it buries the truth. So if you, Arthur, Andrew, forgive me, I keep doing that. Uh, Andrew, if you write a true article on the blog at the Center for Immigration Studies and then CNN writes 10 fake articles or that obfuscates the truth, that will bury you in the search rankings and become harder for you to find. So here's the game show, let's play. People don't know how many, I mentioned before, the Center for Immigration Studies is basically the only think tank in DC focused on illegal immigration and opposed to it, right? Uh, yes, that is uh, correct. As I think I've said before, we view ourselves like the greatest hockey, te- hockey team in Ecuador. We may not be gr- uh, good, but we're the only ones who do what we do. No, and you're great. But here's the point. If you guys put out a story, let's talk about, here's a game show. Name the groups, and I'll, I'll start you off, but then just go through and name as many as you can quickly. It's like match game or something. Uh, there's people aren't aware there's you're up against one group up against dozens and dozens of groups. So I'll start at Maldef, Lulac, Kazahusta. Those are all groups that are in favor of illegal immigration and write. They have websites and they all write articles. Correct. The LCLU in California, in California. Yeah, they are all uh, pro-immigration groups. They definitely take a uh, different view of uh, illegal immigration than the Center for Immigration Studies does. Uh, And uh, quite frankly, looking at the polling, they take a different view of illegal immigration than the vast majority of Americans do. Now, what other groups can you think of that I didn't name? I named four, LULAC, MALDEF, Kazahusa, and the ACLU in California. Who else? What's a few more? Well, you know, I actually take a very interesting perspective to this, Lee, because, uh, again, if you go on Twitter, uh, you know, maybe you'll find me, maybe you won't, but I don't actually, you know, use Twitter to engage in discourse. Uh, And part of the reason is that I don't want to respond to people because I don't want to give them a bigger megaphone to uh, repeat uh, statements that are tendentious, subjective, uh, often wrong, or requiring additional uh, explanation in order to explain them. So 
in response to this question, you know, I prefer not to talk about other groups. Uh, if you're looking for one source for uh, information about what's really going on uh, in information, I would send you to the Center for Immigration Studies. There's certainly other groups out there, uh, Heritage, uh, that also, you know, put out, you know, very uh, valid articles, uh, correct articles on what's no, going I, on in immigration. I understand the thinking. So let me ask you about a number. How many groups would you say there are offhand? Just the number, not the, don't name them. Well, to quote the Bible, uh, their name is Legion for they are many. There are, you know, tens of groups, potentially hundreds of groups out there. Uh, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, well-funded by uh, big business. Uh, some of them are, you know, well-funded by, uh, you know, their own interest groups. But, you know, there are uh, a lot of groups out there that, uh, you know, uh, downplay illegal immigration, uh, downplay the effects of illegal immigration, both uh, the criminal effects of illegal immigration and also the economic effects that illegal immigration has uh, on American communities. And that really is the interesting thing. Uh, and, you know, I do I, I write a lot about polling. Because I think that, you know, most people, when they, you know, they see the numbers, they look at what's going on uh, at the southwest border in particular, uh, you know, they're concerned that, you know, they're the only they're concerned and they think that they are the only ones who are concerned. So part of the reason that I write about polling is uh, to, you know, let people know that there are other people out there who share their concerns and also to hold uh, the administration, not just this administration, but the Trump administration to account for the fact that there are, you know, significant concerns out there that people have that they should be aware of as they make policy. And ultimately, a lot of their arguments come down to, I'm sure you saw the New York Times story on Tucker Carlson. And I pointed out that the guy who wrote that article is accusing Tucker of racism and everything else. Is, is about Tucker's concerns about immigration and the fact that Tucker brings it up as an issue. And he called it racist fear-mongering. But, so I'm up in South Dakota, about 800,000 people up here. How quickly are 800,000 people illegal immigrants coming across the border, a state's worth? Uh, the number that are apprehended uh, every month is about 200,000. So, uh, and that's prior to the end of uh, Title 42, which is expected to happen uh, on May the 23rd. But uh, the number of people who have been released into the United States actually exceeds that 800,000 figure for South Dakota. In fact, uh, the under the Biden administration, DHS has apprehended and released some 836,000 individuals, and that doesn't count more than 150,000 unaccompanied alien children who have, uh, you know, entered the United States illegally and who under a law that even uh, Barack Obama criticized when he was president, have been released into the United States to be placed with sponsors, many of them their own parents, uh, many of them here illegally in the United States. So yeah, we're quickly getting up to a level where if those kids were one school district, they'd be the 16th largest school district in America. 
where if uh, you know the population of people who has been released into the United States uh, were a city, it would be you know the seventh or sixth or seventh largest city in the United States. We're talking about a population of people who are larger than not just uh, South Dakota, but uh, larger uh, than uh, Wyoming, larger than uh, a number of other states in the union. So yeah. We're talking about a volume of people. In fact, during testimony uh, before the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee yesterday, I think the figure was, uh, you know, one out of every 300 individuals who are living in the United States today is an alien who entered the United States and was released into this country by the Biden administration. That doesn't even count, you know, an estimated thousand, two thousand per day who successfully evade apprehension and make their way into the United States. When you start to add in those numbers, you're really talking about a significant number of people. You're talking about, you know, 836,000 uh, plus, uh, plus about 620,000. So you're talking about, you know, 1.4, 1.5 million people who have entered the United States illegally since January the 21st, 2021, the day after the inauguration. And they can't dispute those numbers. So what they try to do is shut down discussion about that. That's the goal of calling Tucker Carlson and his audience racist for bringing this up, right? They don't dispute the numbers, but for years they've been using that as an argument, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, I've actually seen this uh, when I've testified before Congress in the past. Uh, if you ever uh, go online, go on to CIS.org and you take a look at my congressional testimony, you'll see that I generally write anywhere between 40 and 55 pages of testimony with, you know, numerous footnotes, tens to hundreds of footnotes. And the reason that I do that is because I want to provide Congress with the actual facts. You know, they're the ones that make the decision. Uh, they're the ones that set the policy, but I want them to know what the actual facts are. And I'm, you know, uh, you know, meticulous when it comes to, you know, providing that information and sourcing it, uh, you know, so that people know this isn't just, you know, Art Arthur's opinion. You know, these are actual facts upon which they can rely. And despite that fact, however, uh, I've been maligned. I've been asked who I associate with. I've been asked what books I read uh, and, you know, accused of, you know, any number of things when testifying before Congress. Now, remember, I'm not showing up at the front door of Congress, you know, with copies of testimony and demanding to be let in so that I can testify. I've been invited by the chairman of these committees uh, to testify. And despite that, uh, you know, I've still had my motives questioned. Uh, you know, I my motives are pure. Uh, I am one of those people who believes that immigration is absolutely essential to the United States. It's what, you know, part of what makes the United States an exceptional country. But as Barbara Jordan, the late Barbara Jordan, civil rights icon, noted, you know, more than a quarter century ago, that, you know, when the numbers get too large, especially illegal immigration, the American people will lose faith in immigration. Uh, and, you know, if that happens, that really is a dire situation. Immigration should be, uh, you know, must continue, uh, you know, for the sake of our republic. But it has to be controlled. Uh, it has to be limited. And immigration has to be in the interest of the American people if you expect them to continue to, you know, have faith in that system and support immigration. 
Right. And and because the border is so porous, not we've talked about the reasons people come in often is they want a job. They're not fleeing dangerous conditions or whatever. They just want to make more money. And and I'm not arguing that that point, but the border is so porous that it's presenting it's allowing terrorists to come in, too. And I want to go to clip one. We have Jim Jordan. I think that is in the first one. Let's play the first clip. Listen to this. Secretary, have any of the 42 illegal migrants on the terrorist watch list or no-fly list encountered on our southwest border been released into the United States? Um, Ranking Member Jordan, as I mentioned before, I will provide that data to you with respect to the disposition of each one. I do not know the answer to your question. The Secretary of Homeland Security does not know the answer to the status of 42 individuals who came to our southern border illegally are on the no-fly list and the 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 terrorist watch list. You do not not know of whether they have been released or not into the country. Uh, That's your testimony. Ranking member uh, Jordan, as I've said before, I will provide you the data. I do back to the general. This. That's amazing. Now, am I wrong in thinking that's outrageous that the head of the Department of Homeland Security can't answer that question? No, that really is the uh, the basic question. That's the most basic question. Uh, that the Secretary of Homeland Security should be able to answer. Remember, this is a department that was created, and I played a role in drafting the legislation that created the Department of Homeland Security in response to uh, the September 11th attacks, the you know uh, largest terrorist attacks in U.S. history carried out on U.S. soil. Uh, and you know that needs to be job one. Now, DHS has a lot of jobs, probably too many jobs, more than we ever anticipated they would have. But you know, if you can't answer that basic question, then everything else, you know, all of the counterfeit beanie babies and you know Pokemon cards that uh, are stopped coming into the United States, you know, who cares? Because you know, protecting the American people against national security risks is job one. And, you know, job one means that you know how many people are coming in, who they are and why they're here. It's important to note, Lee, that, you know, when you talk about the U.S. immigration system, you know, we meticulously screen people uh, who, uh, you know, foreign nationals who are looking to come to the United States for various things. And one of the things that we screen them for is to make sure that they're not going to do harm to the people or institutions of the United States. It's a two-layer screening. You know, first you go to the consulate abroad, then you go to the uh, inspector at the airport. You know, people, most Americans don't realize they're being screened before they come into the United States whenever they walk up to the kiosk uh, at the airport. Those two layers are absolutely crucial to our national security. Those two layers don't exist when a, a foreign national enters the United States illegally and that that alien you know, uh, demands to be released into this country or evades uh, apprehension. That's a, a true vulnerability. And again, you know, people who say every illegal migrant is a criminal, well, they've committed a crime, uh, it's a misdemeanor. But you know, the more important part is that we don't know who they are. If I were to, you know, wake up at two o'clock in the morning and find somebody in my kitchen, maybe they're there to, you know, uh, you know, clean the dishes or fix the pipes. But you know, I expect that person to tell me what their intentions are. 
before I'm going to let them remain. Unfortunately, that's not the position that the United States government right now under the Biden administration is taking with respect to 200,000 plus people who are entering the United States illegally. Now, you had an article over at the CIS website re recently relating this situation to the case of Ramzi Youssef. What were you talking about there? Yeah, and it's important. Ramzi Youssef was the mastermind behind the first World Trade Center bombing. He entered the United States with a man named Ahmed Ajaj. They uh, they flew in on Pakistani, I think it was Pakistani International Airlines. They landed at JFK uh, in uh, September of 1992. Ramzi Youssef, when he was stopped because he didn't have a visa in his passport, asserted that uh, he uh, had been persecuted by uh, Iraqi forces because he was believed to be a Kuwaiti guerrilla and that he wanted asylum in the United States. The inspector who uh, interviewed him thought that the, there were some you know, pretty funky things in this guy's story, but uh, and she recommended that he be detained, but she was overruled because there wasn't enough detention space and he was released uh, you know, from the airport. He got into a cab and he went to a mosque where uh, the first World Trade Center bombing in February 1993 really got started. Shortly after uh, you know, that attack in which six people were killed and a thousand injured, uh, you know, he uh, you know, got on a plane and went back to Pakistan. And in Pakistan, he inspired his uncle, a fellow named uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, to plan additional attacks against the United States. Ramsey Yusuf should have never been released into this country. He was an arriving alien. By law, he was supposed to be detained, uh, and he should have been detained until that asylum claim could be heard. And if he had been detained, that first World Trade Center attack never would have taken place. And if that hadn't taken place, then the second World Trade Center attack never would have taken place. That's a huge vulnerability in our system. And people will say, well, you know, most of these people are good people coming to work. And yeah, you know, I've been an immigration judge. That's true. The problem is, you know, I do, we don't know which ones are good, which ones are bad, what reasons they've come to the United States, which ones have criminal record, and which ones have terrorists, or which ones are terrorists uh, until after we have the ability to put them through, you know, that removal proceeding, which is why Congress said, don't release arriving aliens until after their claims have been adjudicated. Now, all the groups I mentioned before, and we talked about without naming them, uh, uh, dozens or hundreds of groups even a lot how much funding of those groups all those groups are considered part of civil society they're all civil society groups how much is george soros a funder is he, he behind a lot of these groups in your experience or not you know, it's funny because I get asked uh, when I was in Europe uh, a few months back, I actually got asked questions about George uh, Soros. I, I really don't know. Uh, you know, I, I have no idea. Uh, a lot of these groups are funded by uh, Americans who really, you know, who hear the stories that they tell and think that these are good groups uh, for them to fund. Uh, I can't tell you what the source of funding for any of them are, and I can't even tell you what their budgets are. Of course, most of that is uh, not public knowledge because they are, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations that are being run, uh, you know, in this country. So, you know, answering that question is difficult. And, you know, again, I don't want anybody to malign uh, my intentions. Uh, and I, I'm really not in the business of maligning anybody else's. 
But what I can tell you is, look at my facts, look at their facts, you know, see which facts are correct, see what's subjective, see what is, you know, anecdotal, uh, and make your own decisions. And I think that if you if you do, much like, you know, the majority of American people who are very worried, 61 percent. Uh, are, you know, uh, worried about illegal immigration in the United States, I think that you will come to the same conclusions that I do. I put the facts out there, Lee, and I leave it up to the people who are in charge to make uh, the decisions. But the reason I mention them is because they don't just supply information. They're act, these groups, a lot of times NGOs, are taking action and helping the U.S. government relocate illegal immigrants all over the country. Let's play a second clip, shall we? When I do want to know, though, you, you say immigrants are placed in immigration proceedings, but you didn't say where they go during those proceedings. Uh, they remain in the United States. When you say somebody's placed in immigration proceedings, and then you further clarified that some are detained. If they're not detained, the vast majority go released around the country, correct? Uh, uh, no, um, uh, quite a, a significant number are placed on alternatives to detention. Uh, we uh, use the acronym ATD. There are different levels of alternatives to detention depending on the risk profile. But you ship many of those people that are not detained in these other categories around the country, correct? Uh, yes, on um, alternatives to detention. And that's one of the things involved. you're looking to increase the money for is to pay NGOs and have your own uh, folks who can help get those people shipped around the country, correct? Uh, uh, Congressman, if I can uh, explain. You, you have asked for an increase in that amount of money, correct? Yes, yes we have. And so I'm wanting to know, though, who makes the decision where these different bus loads, plane loads, train loads, who makes the decision where they are going to go in the country? So, Congressman, uh, there are different tiers of disposition depending on the risk program. I'm wanting to know who makes I'm those determinations. I now, is there a reason he's not just answering a question you think, Art, Andrew? Yeah, uh, you know, honestly, I think uh, part of the reason why is because uh, the American people don't really, you know, understand that uh, relationship between, you know, many NGOs and the fact that they actually have uh, U.S. government contracts to do a lot of this work. Uh Many of those contracts came out of the, you know, classic refugee resettlement mission. Uh, a refugee is a person who fears persecution abroad. They've been screened before they come to the United States. They come here, and we don't expect those people to, you know, be able to support themselves. It's a different, uh, you know, it's a different culture, different country, different economy. And so, you know, non-governmental organizations have traditionally uh, you know, receive contracts from the government to help those people be resettled in the United States. This is actually a different situation, though. Uh, and, you know, it's a slippery slope that started back in the Homeland Security Act of 2002, when the Office of Refugee Resettlement at the Department of Health and Human Services, who are the folks who resettle refugees in the United States, were given the authority uh, to you know, shelter unaccompanied alien children in this country. Traditionally, that was done by, you know, the INS. But, you know, uh, Congress gave it to uh, those NGOs 
uh, or gave it to HHS. HHS uh, farmed it out to the NGOs. Uh, and those folks make money uh, when they, you know, help to move those children throughout the United States. Now, the degree to which they're helping other people move through the United States, this is one of those things in which there's a lack of transparency. Again, you know, I don't have, you know, deep sources within DHS. I can only, you know, base my conclusions, my assessments, my, you know, my review on what's open source. When that stuff's not open source, uh, you know, we, we can't really tell what our own government is doing and where our own tax uh, money is going, which I think gets to your main point. We need to have more visibility into the system and we need to have more more, you know, facts, more discussion of this. And Andrew, if we're out of time, great appearance as usual. The website is cis.org, correct? That is correct. And I'm at the top of the page because my name begins with A. There we go. And I, I, I did all the variants on that it's possible. So thanks a lot, Andrew. Great appearance as usual. We'll be back after this with more on The Backstory. from the Empire of Lies and just outside the measures, the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines, the backstory. And we are joined by our Wednesday guest co-host, Carter Laren. Hey, Carter, how you doing? I'm all right, man. How you doing? Good. Good. So fantastic appearance by Andrew Arthur, as usual. And he's a very fair-minded person, but it doesn't make any difference how fair-minded he is or how calm he is. He is smeared as a racist, as he says in front of Congress. Have you noticed that weapon that Democrats have, they, they play constantly accusing someone of racist intent without any proof of that whatsoever? Carter. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's actually not to get not to dive into philosophy right away, but that's the premise behind critical theory. That's the premise behind all of critical race theory is that you don't the question isn't is something racist. It's how is it's racist, how it's racist. So, um, yeah, and they they do that all the time. I I have a white pill, though. The good news is my sources in junior high school, i.e. my daughter. Uh, and friends, uh, my sources tell me that the kids uh, don't use the word racist racist at all, except uh, as a as a joke, um, except as a parody of itself. So they'll they it's become a joke because it has been overused by mainstream so much to criticize enemies by just calling them racist that it now doesn't mean anything to the next generation. Well, and and that's part of what. Not the thing with the, the kids, but that's part of what bothers me about overusing some of these terms. The term Nazi has been so overused that when you're dealing with actual Nazis, people with Nazi tattoos and 1488 face tattoos, like we have in Ukraine, actual Nazis who kill people, who torture people, no one believes it, right? Yep. I, th- I think yeah. if someone... Because I'm sure, like me, you actually abhor 
genuine racism and think racists are not only misguided and evil, but more significantly stupid because they view people as a collective, not as individuals. Right, Carter? Yeah, absolutely. It was just a manifestation of collectivism, which is the greatest evil and probably the stupidest philosophical premise of all history. So, yeah. And you know, um, so you, you know what I mean? Saying someone, it, it, it's it's stupid. It's an idiotic view. It's indef- it's indefensible based on people's everyday experience. You know that the color of your skin doesn't mean anything about what political party you belong to or whatever but these are all and and there is a crisis at the southern border the numbers are unbelievable but they constantly call people like Tucker Carlson racist it's their only play and so and I'll, I'll let me get to the boom coming up this hour we have Scott Powell, a first-time guest, and we're going to have a very, very pro-American hour, Carter Laren. Do you mind? You mean here on The Backstory, Lee? That's right. Our guest this hour has written a book called Rediscovering America. And do you know what? I'm critical of the CIA and I'm critical of America's foreign policy. But I love this country. I love America. And I love the principles that it's founded on. And I think it started to go astray around the middle of the 18th century when Anglo-Americanism, the British, became more of an influence. And I think it's provable that that's when things started to go wrong. But I, I think, Carter, if I, if I don't miss my guess, are you with me? You you don't hate America, right? Uh, no, although I, it depends on what you mean by America. If you mean the behavior of the people in charge in the deep state and the federal government, then hate is close to the word that describes how I feel. If you mean as a country, the principles on which it was founded, it's clearly the the best founding ever of any nation on the history of Earth, and it's it's been it has been the best nation. Um, and I think that's because of the ideas behind it. And so uh, the only reason that that uh, I, I hesitate to praise it now is because of how far it has fallen from the ideals that were codified in its founding documents. And, I, and no, and I agree with that 100 percent. And I was on Twitter last night, as I want to do, and someone was saying America has no culture except oppressing people of color and even white people. And I said, are you a moron? Anyone who can think of cultural stuff about America. No, I mean it. Has, has it, for instance, have they heard of jazz? Well, let's just start there. Well, Rock and roll. You know what? I mean, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Carter. I mean, we, you can start with music. You can go with food. You can go with art. You can, like, fine. But honestly, to me, the the most identify the, the the most unique aspect of American culture, which is unique, is the rugged individualism, the American spirit, the idea that uh, individuals 
have inalienable rights that the government shouldn't trounce on. That's the uh, that's the American spirit, and that was unique at the time. It's still relatively distinct and not common elsewhere, and that's the spirit that the left has been working to absolutely destroy and erode for their entire existence. No, exactly. And I pointed out last time in my tweet, because I was naming the obvious stuff, art, music, architecture, cuisine, but I also said political ideas, the very idea of free speech. When the founding fathers talked about it and made the First Amendment, the First Amendment, they knew free speech was unique. A lot of European countries didn't have that. And Washington, Franklin, Jefferson explicitly talked about the importance of free speech and a free press. Because they said, you're not going to be able to sustain a democracy or a republic without an informed citizenry. And to do that, you need to have free, fr freedom of the press. So I agree. You, you have to include the political ideas. And of course, when I say I'm disappointed in this country and the direction it's taken, it's to me best summed up in contrast to the ideals. And those are the ideals. A lot of the Democrats in particular want to destroy what made America unique and just put it down to racism and slavery and oppression. And I disagree with that entirely. Well, none of those are unique to America. I mean, the history of slavery and oppression is the history of humans on Earth for our entire existence. So to say that America is unique and that there was slavery and oppression is uh, either moronic or a bold-faced evil lie. And I think most of the time it's the latter. Now, the other thing I was noting today is, you know, we're in a polarized world. I'm not telling you any news there. We're in a polarized world where if I said uh, certain issues, for instance, taking a pro-life position, that's seen as a Republican position, right? Or taking a pro-choice position, that's seen as a Democrat position. And there are exceptions to that in both cases, but that's, they're largely seen as Democrat or Republican issues. It occurred to me that free speech in this, and this is disgusting, free speech is firmly a Republican issue. Democrats, I don't see any Democrats in defense of free speech who are politicians, official Democrats. No one is coming out defending free speech. And hatred of Elon Musk is a position, the default position of Democrats. And what the hell's happened? Because I remember, I'm old, so I remember when the Democrats believed in freedom of speech and opposed censorship and opposed the deep state. I remember the church committee hearings, they were in favor of questioning what the CIA was doing. And that was the Democrats, and that's gone. But am I right that free speech is a partisan position and it's all Republican? I'm, I'm, yes. I'm not counting libertarians, but. Yeah, no, we, we don't have to count libertarians. But I, I think 
Yeah, and and I'm old enough, like you, I'm old enough to remember. Now, actually, it wasn't that long ago when it was the religious right who were the threats to free to free speech, and it was the left that had principled arguments about the importance of freedom of speech, and it has we've we've done a complete flip flop. And I was I've been thinking about this. May I'll run this by you? You tell me what you think. I wonder if the reason for this is that really what the left has been about this whole time is uh, destroying the uh, the America that you and I love and instituting some sort of neo-Marxism or socialism of their own design. And while they viewed the the state as their enemy, they were all about free speech. But at this point, the state has really become more their friend and is actually helping them do what they want. And therefore, uh, free speech is no longer necessary. In fact, it's inimical to their goals. Well, I think it's a it's a combination of things. First off, if I use the term radical Marxism, I mean, even Marxists who we have on the show all the time don't accept identity politics. Real, real Marxists know that that is against Marxist view of class as significant. So by putting race and gender into the mix and making those fundamental issues, they've alienated a lot of Marxists. But the De- Democrat Party has simultaneously incorporated radical Marxism and neoliberalism or sucking up to the establishment. The establishment has realized the power. See, the way it works is, if you call someone a racist, you shut down discussion. If you say someone's a racist in public discourse, you're saying basically, I'll put it like this, you might as well call them a child molester. If someone's a child molester, you don't have to listen to them on anything. And that's just the way it works in society. They're so reviled that we don't have to listen to them. So if you say someone's a racist, it takes them out of the realm of someone you have to listen to, right? And the yeah, establishment yeah. has the establishment has realized the advantage of playing that over and over. So you have people who aren't radical Marxists, but are in fact slavish technocrats or elitists who use that principle. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it is an attempt to remove people from discourse. Um, Although I I would say, you know, I'm not actually talking about radical Marxists. I'm really talking, I mean, if you want to look at what happened when when Marxist predictions didn't come true, you had a lot of American academics who were were Marxists and and needed to explain this. And they they took a lot of the principles, and this is predominantly the critical school, uh, the critical theory uh, and Frankfurt School, um, although then the postmodernists did the same thing. They had political goals which were aligned with a lot of, uh, we'll say, neo-Marxist beliefs, but they couldn't apply the class arguments anymore because they didn't work. The the proletariat didn't rise up and overthrow the bourgeois. And f- instead, they became a middle class and it, it destroyed their whole prediction for how history would go. So they, they needed something else to explain why things hadn't gone the way they wanted. And so they started to apply 
the identity politics of class they they jettisoned and they started to apply it to other things, uh, race, gender, and that kind of thing. And the Soviet Union actually actively supported race wars in the United States in an attempt to get uh, – to, to have identity politics be a thing that would disintegrate American society. And the idea was, well, we were wrong about the proletariat rising up and that being the inevitable end of capitalism. But we can bring about the end of capitalism a different way by applying identity politics to these other groups who will fight each other and eventually destroy the system. No, of course, you're completely right. And the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse, Horkheimer, those, those people – uh, they were a huge influence on the 60s radical groups like the Black Panthers. Marcuse yes. and, a and a lot of the, the people from the Frankfurt School left Germany around World War II and came to America, and many of them literally went into the culture business. They moved to California, and some of them went into the screenwriting business. You're aware of that, right? Yeah, and 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 actually, also a huge cabal in New York. But yeah, they moved to the cultural centers, and Marcuse, in particular, was the, known as the philosopher of the left in the '60s, and everyone knew who he was. And they and his, you know, his connection to Angela Davis. I don't. Well, look, look up a do do yourself a favor. His protege, Herbert Marcuse's protege, was Angela Y. Davis, the black radical in the 1960s, and she's still around. If you look up Marcuse and Angela Davis and do an image search, you'll find a picture of them together. She started smoking cigars because she wanted to be like Marcuse. The other thing that Marcuse said in his book is he specifically said that the revolution would rise out of the ghetto. So they were waiting for black people to kick off the revolution, the communist revolution. And they wanted black people to be vanguard of the revolution, which also, by the way, would have mean the vanguard of the revolution are the first to get shot because they're up in front. Yes. Right. Uh, that's always the way it is. The the original revolutionaries are always up against the wall when the when the final strongman takes over. Um, yeah. I mean, he's also I mean, if you look at his essay, Repressive Tolerance, it's playing out now. Right. He he made this argument for uh, being intolerant to I mean, we, we talked about free speech earlier. Right. He made this argument basically against free speech, basically. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not explicitly against free speech, but it's about intolerance and the importance of not tolerating um, ideas that weren't basically uh, not leftist ideas. I mean, that was uh, it, there's a little bit more nuance to it, but that that's basically his essay. And uh, you love philosophy. And so I'm sure you're like me. I also love a discipline that few people talk about intellectual history and intellectual history is where you look at the way ideas almost like DNA mutate. So in other words, you bring together the radical Marxism of the Frankfurt school and black nationalism 
which existed separately. And you put those two together and you get a lot of what we're seeing in Black Lives Matter. And right, you see the intellectual history of this dating back to the 60s, correct? And do you love that sort of stuff? I do. In fact, I, I see the intellectual history of this dating back to uh, some poor enlightenment thinkers and then and then Marx and, and Kant and, and those people. I mean, uh, if if you're interested, um, I don't know if you know Stephen Hicks, but he's written a, an excellent book about postmodernism and he traces it, um, traces it all the way back to the counter enlightenment, uh, which was basically a, a set of philosophers that arose to combat these these dangerous ideas of individualism and liberty that were uh, arising out of enlightenment thinkers. And you mentioned postmodernism a couple of times. Why don't you do the listeners a favor? Because it's a term people can hear, but they don't know exactly what it means. How do you define postmodernism, Carl Lehrer? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, the wonderful thing about postmodernism is uh, it it does – it either defies definition or when you define it, it sounds so crazy that uh, people can't believe it's a real thing. But basically, uh, uh, metaphysically, there's a there's a belief that um, the metaphysical reality that you and I think is real isn't actually real. Um, so we're not actually living in reality. And uh, the epistemology of reason that you and I rely on every day is basically invalid. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of, I would say philosophically, it's kind of an anything goes kind of analysis. Now it's been woven, interwoven with critical theory. There's a lot of postmodernists who do linguistic analysis and, um, uh, deconstruction of language. So they believe that language actually creates reality, which I know also sounds crazy, but these are the crazy beliefs. Now, most postmodernists will defend these beliefs. They'll say things like, Yes, nothing is true at all. That's certainly what we believe. They don't believe in the existence of truth. They don't believe in the existence of any absolutes. But they will defend themselves by saying – many of them will defend themselves by saying, well, these are kind of just thought experiments in a way to look at the world. We don't actually mean that you take them seriously enough to try and implement them. But of course, most people do take them seriously enough to try and implement them, and especially a lot of political activists use them as justifications for basically anything you want. I mean, there's people can use postmodernism to justify anything from libertarianism to to communism. And it's it's uh, it's kind of an anything goes words have whatever meaning we decide them to have. What do you am I wrong about that? What is your what's your critique of that definition of postmodernism? No, I think that's right. And, and it is a confusing term because it does sound nuts. When you talk about postmodernism, it does sound nuts. And you think, well, how can anyone believe that? And the answer is a good college education. <laughs> yes. I, I, right? It's it's so crazy that only people who go to uh, Ivy League school, if you don't pick up postmodernism at trade school or community college. Although that's changing. Well, the interesting thing is you can't, right? Because you can't actually apply postmodernism to your day-to-day -day life. If you got up out of bed and started applying postmodernist uh, epistemology and metaphysical principles um, to your day-to-day -day life, uh, you would end up as a bowl of jelly on the floor and die. Like you couldn't function. So 
it, it's it is ridiculous to that extent. They just view they view everything that we do to function as a as a convenience. Well, we do it because it's convenient. It's 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 a norm. But if we could all just believe that gravity doesn't exist and it wouldn't. Right. It's extreme subjectivism. And we've talked about that before. Yes. That's one of the great philosophical problems of our age, which is objectivism versus the belief that there is an objective reality. And then you can decide in epistemology how you figure out what reality is. But that fundamental foundation, some people deny that there is ob ob objective reality. And postmodernism does is part of that school. Right. Yeah, I would say, like, if you want to think about postmodernism, imagining imagine doing LSD and taking your experience seriously and writing it down and getting your Ph.D. thesis. That's what it is. And it's it's behind a lot of the problems that we see, you know. Uh, I, I've talked about we've been talking for the past couple of days about the Roe versus Wade decision and. I hear a lot of people take the agnostic position, which says we can't really say. You know, you hear that all the time. We don't know when life begins. And I think actually, I was thinking about this today. You might disagree, actually. But mm. I was thinking the issue of when life begins isn't a tricky one. Because in the first trimester, what? If, if it's not life, what is it? Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do. I do. Um, I don't know if you would call me an agnostic on this exactly, but I, I would say we absolutely know when life begins. It begins at conception. The question that I have is when do rights begin? Um, and that's a much more complex question that I don't think we're prepared to answer. Uh, if you're if you're religious, you can answer it um, somewhat arbitrarily, although I, I actually don't think it's super arbitrary. I mean, if you say that God endows people with, with rights, then – it seems like the time he would do that would be at conception. I mean, that that's kind of where that would come from. Um, but, but it, but, you know, but somewhat arbitrary just because it's a, a religious interpretation. But if you are, if you're not going to use religion to talk about uh, where rights come from, I mean, it's pretty, it's relatively easy. I mean, you know, Rand's argument for how adults uh, obtain rights and individual sovereignty and why that arises from uh, uh, man, the nature of man and and our need to live uh, with each other in society and all that. Like those, that's pretty clear. The question becomes, well, when does that start? And, and you know, Rand was pretty adamant about, um, you know, she wrote a lot about abortion being a woman's uh, right and that you couldn't, that rights didn't apply to a potential and that a fetus was just a potential. But even Rand, and I discovered this yesterday, actually, even Rand, uh, it turns out her conversation was all about the first trimester. And even she made an exception for, well, you could argue about, you could argue about later in the, pre in the pregnancy. Uh, so even Rand wasn't totally sure when uh, individual rights uh, become endowed. And my suspicion, and again, you can accuse me of being an agnostic on this, but my suspicion is that, uh, they arise on a continuum and, um, you know, the, a, a one-year-old child has a right to life, but, 
um, you know, probably, but, but they don't obviously have the right or capability to make decisions on their own and function on their own. And so that continuum goes back somewhere and it could go back pre-birth. That's a, that could be a reasonable thing. I mean, I, I think personally, this is not an argument, but personally, I'm disgusted by the idea of an abortion the day before birth. That's horrible. And if you have kids and you look at your, your baby and think two days ago it would have been fine to, to kill this baby, uh, it's a repulsive thought. That said, I also look at things like Plan B and say, "Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that." So, I, I think I think it's actually quite a gray area, and I think the way that Roe v. Wade addressed it morally was kind of appropriate in that they said, "Well, you, you know, you got to be able to do it early on. Later on, you could you restrict it." However, I don't think it was a federal uh, court's jurisdiction to do that. I don't think they should have done that. I'm I would be in support of overturning Roe v. Wade. I think this is a question to be left to the states, but. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not pro-life at conception. So I don't know, it would deride me, call me, call me an agnostic and, and tell me why I'm no, wrong. No, I, I don't consider you an agnostic on that because you're not saying we can't know and then shrugging your shoulders and throwing up your hands. You're saying you think we can know, but you're picking the line where rights are at a different point. And you're basing it on facts and reason. So I, I, I'm not going to deride you. I'm going to say, I think there's another argument. Uh, and I've been thinking about this. But, but some people literally say, we can't know. Right? You see a lot of people they say, do. we just can't say. Yeah, they also make viability arguments, which is an argument Rand tried to make. And I think that's a, a horrible philosophical argument because it won't be long before viability is at conception in the test tube. So, uh, I mean, the viability argument is is not a philosophical argument either. Right. No, I agree. And that's the point I was making earlier with, with talking about uh, viability specifically. But I do think politically the best way to handle it is – I was talking about an idealized libertarian party because I think we need a strong, well-organized, sane libertarian party at this stage. I think that would be a great thing for people who oppose Republicans on foreign policy and squishiness. But someone said, well, libertarians are pro-abortion. That's not true. Some are and some aren't. And I think politically the solution is federalism. Like you're saying, the overturning of aid is a good thing and does not make abortion illegal in every state. And I think it should be worked out through federalism. So great discussion with our guest host for today, Carter Laren. When we come back, we'll have Scott Powell talking about his book, Rediscovering America, and talking about American history as seen through our holidays. That's coming up after this break on The Backstory. We're back in The Backstory, 105.5 FM. AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. And coming up, we're going to talk to author Scott Powell 
about his book, Rediscovering America, right after this. But Carter, let me ask you something quickly. We've talked about Elon Musk before. Uh, and of course, Elon Musk bought Twitter recently. I must say something just from an emotional perspective of watching the guy. I have been very happy with Elon Musk. I like him more and more. The more I see him out there, do you, are you having the same emotional? Did you see him at Met Gala with his mom making funny faces? I I saw a couple of screenshots of that, but uh, I didn't I didn't see a lot from that gala. But yeah, I I will say over the past few years, I think not only has Elon grown on me a little bit, I think he's evolved a little bit. Uh, I don't think it's just that I've started to like him. I think he's started to change. Um, I know there are still a lot of Elon haters, even from people you would expect to to like him, um, because they they're you know. They're afraid of AI or they're angry about his futurism and that kind of stuff or they're cynical about his, uh, you know, his intentions behind buying Twitter. I mean, look, the guy, it's a step forward. It's a step in the right direction. I think people tend to take these guys and say, well, because he's not perfect, he's horrible and we should be cynical about him. Of course, he's not perfect. But, you know, he's been arguing for the importance of free speech. He's right on that one point, at least. It is important. And he's putting his money where his mouth is. So uh, I'm not sure what we're supposed to be complaining about. I think he's great. And I'm going to use a phrase that you don't hear every day, except among Ayn Rand fans. I'll talk about sense of life for a second. His sense of life is Elon Musk is a guy. What I love about him is he's having fun. Because if you're the richest guy in the world, what's the point if you're not going to have fun? You see what I'm saying? He's enjoying yes, himself. Yeah, not only is he enjoying himself, but what I like about his sense of life is he's not enjoying himself like a hedonist. I mean, he maybe he is behind closed doors, but but the things that here he's enjoying is buying Twitter, uh, you know, right? Being a cultural influence and like being able to mock powers that he thinks are evil. Um, so yeah, and and, and the, my favorite thing about his sense of life is. The guy is optimistic about the human race. He is yes. pro children. He is, you know, people get nervous that he he are, he said things before like robots will eventually do all of our jobs, but he's not saying that from a like yay dystopia. He's he's saying some he's he's thinking really big like he does and he's very optimistic and he's saying someday we won't even have to work. We'll just be able to do stuff we like because robots will do everything. Now, I think that's a hell of a long way off, but that's the way the guy thinks. He's very optimistic about humans and, and technology. And, you know, whether he's right or wrong about how things will turn out, I respect that sense of life infinitely more than the cynical anti-human and nothing will ever work out. Everyone sucks and we're all going to die in a nuclear Holocaust sense of life, which is what a lot of people have right now. No, that's right. And that's why I brought that up. Now let's get to our guests. Scott Powell's written a book called Rediscovering America. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Nice to be with you. And, and Scott, I'd like you to meet our co-host, Carter Laren. Car Scott Carter, Carter Scott. Carter, is that your name? Nice to meet you, Carter. It, it is. Good to meet you, Scott. Yep. You got me. I have your, I have your last name as my first name. <laughs> and so, so let's, let's, uh, 
Let's start by telling people where they can get the book, and we'll repeat this at the end. Where can you get Rediscovering America? Well, the, the book uh, is readily available online, of course, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, I think Target, a number of retailers carry it. Just Google my name, Scott S. Powell, Rediscovering America. You'll find a number of, uh, of, of listings, really, right from the top. Um, don't know how smaller bookstores, whether they're carrying it. But, um, what's unique about the book is it's, it's unlike any other history book. Most histories are very linear and they're very secular. Who, what, when, and where. Uh, all, all most issues are sort of given equal value. What I've done in this book is I've written a shorter book, like, unlike most histories. It's about 200 pages long. Uh, it's broken up into 14 chapters, and it's focused entirely on most important transitional periods in our country. Right from the beginning, right from the dis- Columbus's discovery, right through modern times. I've used the holidays as sort of the framework of all these great stories. Really, the focus is on why did things happen? And I go way, you know, my, my brush is very broad. focus on the ideas and the beliefs uh, that shaped our country and made us who we are. And we are the most remarkable country in the world. There's a reason uh, that people talk about American exceptionalism. Number one, that the average length of government systems and constitutions is only about 17 years. America has had one constitution 234 years. Uh, when we think of our metrics, you know, there are many critics about America. We're only 4% of the population, yet we produce 96% of the world's creativity. 4% of the population, and we have 25% of the world's wealth. That was created by people, by individuals, by the private sector. Uh, and the, the virtue of our country is that we've limited government, we've empowered people. All that is being lost in, in modern times, and we can talk about that. Well, yeah, and, and we'll talk about, let's start by talking about freedom of speech, because that is one area where clearly freedom of speech, the concept of freedom of speech is under attack. And oddly, it's a very polarized situation. It is one party attacking freedom of speech. It's the Democrats. And I'm sorry, it is. There's one party deadly against it. And am I right? in thinking that freedom of speech was a fundamentally American idea dating back to the time of the Founding Fathers. Did the Founding Fathers, outside from the First Amendment, did they ever talk about freedom of speech and why it's such an important value? Most certainly did. I mean, we could take a couple of the Founding Fathers. Ben Franklin said, and I'll quote him, there is no such thing as public liberty without freedom of speech. Uh, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson said, our, and this is a quote, our liberty depends on freedom of the press. That cannot be limited without liberty being lost. It's so true because, remember, no one has a monopoly on the truth. In order to live a rational life, uh, in order to, for progress to be made, we always have to get our, our, our arms around reality, what works, and what is true. Getting your arms around truth, no one has a monopoly on the truth. It is the competition of ideas gets us closer to the truth, closer to the best solutions. And so, uh, of course, we should have robust freedom of speech. You know, there's a reason that freedom of speech is enshrined in the Constitution as the very First Amendment. Arguably, the first 
First Amendment, I'll say I'll add the Second Amendment to it, the most important because they protect all the others. And, we, you know, we'd better wake up if we're to keep our freedom, I'll tell you that. Assault on the First Amendment is an assault on our country, on who we are as Americans. We have to push back unrelenting uh, because we cannot be robbed of our freedom of speech. It is essential to who we are as Americans. Carter, any questions? Well, I mean, I just want to push back on one thing. My understanding is that Nina Jankowicz actually does have a monopoly on the truth. <laughs> yes. But let me take that apart for you. She attacked a Hunter Biden laptop story when it first broke in October 2020 as being Russian disinformation. And that was at a critical time before the November 2020 presidential election. We know how that may have affected the presidential election. Then she continued in the same vein for months and months and months. The Hunter Biden laptop, uh, you know, the fabrication, it was Russian disinformation. No, that's false. Everyone knows it's false. The, the, the Hunter Biden laptop is authentic. None of the files on there have been, been tampered with. In fact, they found more files on the, the Hunter Biden laptop by virtue of technical people who can go in and recover deleted files. There's more to this story yet to come. He also promoted the Steele dossier designed to discredit President Trump that's proven to be false, total disinformation fabrication. My knowledge, like other drive-by leftists, she's never acknowledged her error. She's also said that the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States marginalized communities of color. I've got news for her. Uh, you know, this has nothing to do with the pursuit of truth. This alone should discredit and disqualify her, for it is the First Amendment that suit and process of getting at the truth is not a racial issue. In fact, minorities need the truth more than, you know, more than the elites. They, they suffer the most uh, when the elites are ruling by falsehood. Yeah, and what's interesting is among the people who knows this is actually Vladimir Putin. They, he did a speech recently where he talked about how America attacks its own history. And look, America's not perfect, and we have a history. And Russia is not perfect, and it has history. And Putin's aware of Russia's history. And as the leader of Russia, he can acknowledge the problems in the Soviet Union, and he does. But he does not use it to fundamentally say, hey, Russia sucks. It's an oppressive, racist history. And what we do is we have people, and again, largely Democrats, who love to attack America, and they talk about how oppressive it is and all the problems, and never mention the upsides, never mention the great things. Have you noticed that, that America doesn't mention the good things about America? It's one thing to ignore the problems, but you can acknowledge them without falling into a fetal position because the country's so horrible. Scott? Well, that's really why I wrote this book. You know, I've been around uh, maybe maybe about as long as you have, Lee. Uh, what I've seen is just the the we lived with revisionist history uh, for a long time. It, that started the early 20th century. You know, revising history, and of course, all history is biased by phenomena that the victors write the history, 
the story of the vanquished is 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 never told or told the less frequency. It has no stature relative to the history of the uh, of the victor. So that's, you can see that in the, the accounting of uh, of the Civil War period in America. Uh, the, the the Southern story has been largely overlooked or misunderstood, uh, and yet it's very real, the traditions of the South, the complaints and the grievances that the Southerners had toward the North uh, were very significant, and they were pent up, and the Southerners are very smart, they were very, very smart people, smart statesmen, they recognized that in the Constitutional Convention, they were, and the debates that followed it, the, the now, there had been ratification, and many of the states would not have joined and signed the Constitution without the Bill of Rights being attached to it. We know the Tenth Amendment states all the rights are not specifically uh, articulated uh, to the federal government. And they believed that they had the right to secede, just as colonies had the right to secede from Great Britain. It's a story that, you know... Is rarely told or understood. I mean, I rather think that, you know, that Lincoln, uh, his, his desire to keep the Union together was a noble one. And you know, we can't rewrite history. We are one country, 50 states now, uh, and we just got to get back to basics and, and really appreciate the Constitution and live by the Constitution. I mean, we are now you know we are we are so transformed now that we're no longer a constitutional but we're closer to a a mobocracy a pure democracy than we are a constitutional republic and and our country is becoming ungovernable I mean, let's just see what comes out of this leak that came out of the supreme court uh and we don't even know if it was orchestrated to create mob violence in our country but we're really good guess, don't we? It, it doesn't seem like it was leaked in order to help bring people together. No, absolutely not. We've seen, you know, we, we've just seen event after event, event to divide us. That is the strategy of our enemy. We know what the communist strategy is. It, it First and foremost, it is focused on demoralizing the target population, demoralizing people. I mean, we have so many reasons to be demoralized now. But then after you've succeeded in demoralizing people, you then divide them, create division every which way, which is really what we have. Then you create a series of crises. And ultimately, uh, you know, the end game is that the, it, it, is that the target country collapses and, and that the new power steps in to solve all the problems. And I, we've been following... Uh, that plan has been followed pretty, pretty accurately over the last 20, 30 years. And, and I think uh, the, the enemy thinks that we're in the end zone now, in, in the end game. I think they've, they've, got us, they've got the ball in the third yard line. They can get it over the, the, the goal fairly easily. And admittedly, we are in a very difficult way, and that's why we need to revive an understanding of our uh, of the greatness of our heritage, we have a remarkable heritage. There is no country in the world uh, like ours. We have the ability to solve all our problems. We just follow the Constitution. Now, 
I want to talk about you're telling American history through our holidays. I want to go through some of that with you. But first, Carl Laren, our co-host today, do you have any comments or questions based on what Scott's been talking about? Well, I mean, I think he's spot on. This is something that Yuri Bezmenov warned us about in the 80s, the former KGB uh, uh, operative who talked about the demoralization strategy in the West. It's it's reminiscent of – um, I think culturally, it's reminiscent of, of Mao's cultural revolution, what we're seeing right now, which is the destruction of our history and um, the kind of wiping away and demonization of our history. Um, but I do have a question uh, with respect to the the Bill of Rights, which, Scott, you, you mentioned and talked about uh, a little bit. I think a lot of people uh, – probably because they're taught this in public school, perhaps. Uh, A lot of people look at the Bill of Rights and they say, okay, well, there they are. Those are our rights. Those are the ones we have. And my understanding, I'm not a historian, and maybe you can can elaborate on this a little bit, but my understanding is the debate about whether or not to include the Bill of Rights was not over whether such rights existed, but whether including them would imply that only such rights existed. That's a very, very valid point. It's a very good point. I mean – I think the truth lies in the Declaration of Independence, and that is that we have God-given, unalienable right that no state authority can take away from us. One of those is freedom of speech, by the way. That is a God-given right. Our freedom is a God-given right. And so um, it is true that by articulating this in the Bill of Rights, uh, it, it may have created a little bit of a Fusion. But on the other hand, you know, many of the of the large states, they had um, was concern. They kind of took the pulse of was going to sign off on the Constitution, and they recognized that several of the very large states might not sign on to the Constitution unless the, the rights, uh, the Bill of Rights, was attached. That unless the the rights of the people were clearly articulated. And, you know, really, it's not just the First Amendment uh, that's been violated. It's, it's under attack and the Second Amendment. But when you think about what we've lived through uh, over the last 10 or 10 years, uh, you, know, no one, you know, the Fourth Amendment is no unusual searches or seizures or warrants, and, and there must be probable cause and, and a description of the place to be searched uh, before anything could be seized. Well, that's been violated. The Fifth Amendment is no holding without presentment or indictment of a grand jury. That's been violated. The Sixth Amendment says that everyone has a right to a speedy trial uh, and be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation. That's been violated. The Seventh Amendment, right of a jury trial, that's been uh, violated. Uh, Eighth Amendment, no excessive bail or cruel or unusual punishment. Um, So, you know, I think that First two amendments are really the firewall uh, to protect our freedom more than more than the others. And it's interesting that they're so explicitly on attack right now. Yeah, go ahead, Car. Well, I was just going to comment. I mean, Korematsu is still uh, precedent as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, which is just talk about violation of rights. I mean, I guess my question as a regular citizen is, uh, I think it's pretty clear what the Bill of Rights mean. But the people in Washington seem to be very confused about it. How do we go about getting them to adhere 
to the clear language that's written down on a piece of paper from 250 years ago? Well, I think we do it by lawsuits to some extent, and that's why I think we need to, you know, we need to create an army of liberty-loving uh, attorneys, and, 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 and we know who many of those people already are. But I think that there's no choice in pushing back except through, uh, we, we, you know, we, we don't want a revolution, even though, even though Jefferson is on record as, as saying that every now and then it's, it's probably a good idea to have a, revive our, uh, you know, our, our republic with a, with a, uh, a revolution as though, uh, but the stakes are far too high now. We, we want to do everything possible to bring about change through, through nonviolence. Um, and because there's just, you know, we, we, everything is different today. Um, I think we, we, we need to use the courts effectively. It's so sad that the corruption is so pervasive uh, throughout our government, throughout every level, federal and state, it is it has caused people to lose their courage uh, and, and their ability to to push back and stand up for truth. And we saw this, we've seen this in the, you know, in in the in the response to the 2020 election fraud year of pushing back. Let's just hope that. With new developments, and thank goodness for technology, because now we have overwhelming proof, uh, you know, through these tapes that, that are exhibited in the in the Thousand Mule movie that's just out uh, of unbelievable vote fraud. I mean, we're talking industrial scale fraud. We, we're, we're we're living with an illegitimate government. We're in a very precarious world. I mean, we, we are. We're in a place we never, our founders never thought we would ever get to this point. And here we are. So we have to, you know, we have to push back and we have to inform our citizens. And uh, frankly, you know, we have a fraudulent president, not served. Uh, he, he can't serve. and serve out his term. Now, Scott Powell, your book, Readers to Every America, and we're almost out of time. So we have to be back on the show sometime soon if you'll join us. Uh, let's try to take your book tells American history through our holidays. And let's just take one of those in the last couple of minutes here. Coming up at the end of this month is Memorial Day. Now, is there any deeper meaning aside from barbecue and cooking hot dogs and hamburgers to Memorial Day? There what is, does that tell us? There's an amazing story. I've been, I've been, uh, um, Given a given a, a, a so-called writing work order from the, the the Federalist to write on that holiday, so in a couple of weeks that article will be out. But I would say this: that at um, Memorial Day, it's an incredible holiday actually, because it started first of all out of the Civil War, and it started with women. Women of the South felt compelled to decorate the graves of their fallen. You know their 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 own native fallen Confederate, you know boys, but when they started to do this and thought about it, he felt compassion for the Union soldiers that were buried alongside them, and so they decorated the graves equally. So Memorial Day comes, uh, you know, really out of forgiveness. It was, after all, Abraham Lincoln stated unequivocally. He did not blame the South for the war, even though they fired on 
Fort Sumter first. Put equal blame on both sides. Um, of course, you know, the, the, the Memorial Day hadn't been formalized as a holiday, but that was the origin of it. The origin goes right back to the Civil War. And then, uh, you know, after World War One, World War Two was a recognition that really Memorial, you know, Memorial Day should incorporate all those that gave their lives uh, for this country and for freedom. And so, and, and, and of course, fascinating in the Memorial Day story that Robert E. Lee has been vilified. Uh, actually, he was an incredible person of character. He was one of the most remarkable generals. He was a military genius. People on both sides of the conflict loved the man, literally loved him, so the quality of his character he was a remarkable man. We know, you know, the Union won. He had to surrender. But even before that, uh, you know, he he had he his wife had inherited plantations in Arlington, Virginia. And of course, once the war got going, and Lincoln wanted to hire him originally to be general for the you know the the, the federal general, the gen, the general for the for the North, and and. And uh, Lee couldn't—he couldn't rise to that because, I mean, essentially going to war against his fellow Virginians and his family, and he, so he couldn't do that. Ultimately, was hired by the Confederates. Once that happened, he had—he land the Arlington plantations. I think it was about 1,100 acres were seized uh, by by the federal government. Do you know that those plantation land? came the Arlington Cemetery. In other words, the land holdings of Robert E. Lee, this vilified man, became the most sacred burial ground in America. And Scott Powell, we have to end there. We're out of time. Fantastic first appearance. The book is Rediscovering America, right? And wherever books are sold, check it out. Scott Powell, thanks so much for joining us. Great appearance. Carter Laren, great job. Great job co-hosting and a great discussion with Carter early in the hour. And thanks so much to Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, SAS.org. We'll be back tomorrow on the show that brings you a wide variety of opinions, a free speech zone, the backstory. story.